Spring is in the air at Global Voice Broadcasting. Fresh new shows are hitting the airwaves every day. Shows about all the things that matter to you in your life. Music, fashion, celebs, and more. It's all here, and it's getting better every day. Only at Global Voice Broadcasting. My name is August McLaughlin, and I've been contemplating girl boners for years. It's time for Girl Boner Radio with August McLaughlin. A spicy blend of personal stories, in-depth reporting, and inspiration. Girl Boner is where good girls go for sexual empowerment. Listen in as August McLaughlin, award-winning health and sexuality writer, explores female sexual pleasure like no one else. She's the big sister slash girlfriend you've always wanted, and she loves to talk sex. Only on Global Voice Broadcasting. One in five of the nearly 12,000 reported runaway youth in the U.S. were likely sex trafficked, according to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Today happens to be Missing and Exploited Children's Day, May 25th. Welcome back to Girl Boner Radio, everyone. I'm your host, August McLaughlin, and today we are going to explore this super important topic with somebody who has lived through it. For those of you who aren't very familiar, child sex trafficking is the exploitation of anyone age 17 or younger through commercial sex. It's a devastatingly large industry. The FBI estimates more than 100,000 kids nationwide are sex trafficked. It's just unfathomable. And in 2014, close to 1,000 cases of human trafficking were reported just in California, and that's an 80% leap since 2012. Joining me today is Angela Featherstone, a film and TV actress. She will appear on season four of Ray Donovan and played the role Jame on Girls of HBO. She has created sitcoms for Sony, DreamWorks, and NBC, and written nonfiction for Time Magazine, Jane, Flair, The Huffington Post, and more. An excerpt from her memoir in progress, which I'm so looking forward to reading, was published in the 2014 edition of Gargoyle Magazine and nominated for the Pushcart Prize. She also curated Fuck Pretty, a gallery show featuring important and emerging female photographers. She's an adjunct instructor in the UCLA 2015 Professional Producing Program and lectures on issues of PTSD, child abuse, human trafficking, and healing trauma. Her powerful article, which is how I actually became acquainted, first appeared in Dame Magazine called I Didn't Realize I Was Being Sex Trafficked, is not to be missed. Thank you so much for joining me, Angela. Thank you. It's good to be here. I know that it's very common for people who were sex trafficked to not necessarily have a very smooth beginning in life either. And I don't know that people realize that. What do you remember most about your early childhood years? Well, I think, you know, one of the quotes that I came across in researching some statistics to go with my story was how abuse uh, that trafficking comes from and then contributes to uh, tra- trauma or abuse. So yeah, a lot of the, it's my understanding that a lot of the kids who are trafficked are, come from, have already experienced physical or sexual abuse in childhood. Um, and what was your question? What, how do, what do I remember about sure. my childhood? Yeah. So you, that is what you came from. You experienced I, abuse I very did. young. Yes. I came from, um, I, I would say I would categorize it as coming from criminal neglect and um, 
a, ba- a lot of uh, attachment trauma and so a lot of abandonment and um, physical abuse. And could you just share what uh, attachment trauma is? I don't think a lot of people... You know, it's funny because attachment trauma is a new word to me in the last couple of months. Um, It makes perfect sense and how it it contributes to so many things. Um, But my understanding of attachment trauma is primary attachments that have been ruptured. And um, I had a fair amount of that. I think, you know, I think that it can be... Uh, even if like a parent in a healthy home, one parent just is there and then suddenly isn't like works nights or something, or it can be, I'm sure there's a sliding scale of attachment trauma. Um, but like when you're primary caregiver, like for example, in my case, I was in a chaotic home from zero to two, but then when I was two, I was kidnapped from my mother by my father, and then I was bounced around from relative to relative from three till six, and then from six to seven I was with my father, and then when I was seven I was given back to my mother. So that's just in the first seven years a fair amount of rupture. So even if that was all that happened, that is enough to leave me vulnerable to... um, Confusion around uh, boundaries, I think, and um, just maybe a little displaced. And at a certain point, you decided to run away. So had things escalated or did it just kind of dawn on you that this isn't how childhood is supposed to be? Well, I used to threaten to run away a lot, but I never actually ran away until I was 16. And we had moved recently to a, to the big city of Winnipeg. And... Um, there, yeah, things had things had always been rough, but then things started to escalate uh, around the time that I hit puberty, and things started to get a little overwhelming for me. And I sort of took a quick scan of the land and felt that this was certain, this escalation was certain and rapid, too rapid for my comfort. So I would prefer the risk of the unknown living on the streets, and I'd already had a lot of jobs my throughout my life, so I didn't feel like, oh, I can't take care of myself. Like, I had been fantasizing since I was a young kid that I was living on my own. I want, I mean, a Pippi Longstocking for me was, was my, my dream life, wow. <laughs> where all the adults are gone and just a pot of gold and some animals. Um, so I didn't have any concerns about that. Um, and, but, and, and the fact that it was minus 30 for six months of the year didn't cross my mind either when I was making that decision because I had been living in that climate already for years. Yes. In retrospect, I may have planned something a little more concrete for myself than hitting the streets. Yeah. Yeah. But, I'm from Minnesota, so oh. I know those uh, those temperatures. And on one hand, it means you must have really wanted to leave. And on the other, I also remember being like, this is normal. Spring only lasts a couple of weeks. Yeah. 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 What do, uh, yeah. You don't know anything else. And I think that's, that's a big theme is you don't know anything else. And what was life on the streets like for you? Was that a short-lived experience? Because I know you ended up meeting some folks, but were you on your own for a while? 
Well, life on this, you know, the truth is, is that a lot of, I, it's really hard for me to imagine, but most of this stuff that we're talking about really only lasted from the time I left home until the time I left Winnipeg on a Greyhound bus for Toronto, never to return, ostensibly, I was really only about a year. It felt like about 10 years, but it really only was a year, which is so hard for me to comprehend because I, in that time, I ran away. I was just sleeping or I had a job at McDonald's. I was sleeping anywhere I could find a a warm bed. And then, but I got a, and I was sort of doing the downtown Winnipeg shoplifting story and for food and, and clothing. And that's, I got arrested shoplifting. And I think that was like around Christmas time. So I left in like September and by December I was behind bars. And, um, that sort of led to what happened was that's when my parents gave up their rights. And so I was then a ward of the court pretty quickly. So I was then when I was, it was time for me to get out of juvie jail. I went into foster care and then, so I was then in what, what happened was I did not like foster care. I did not like the group homes so, um, not that anyone does, but in my mind, that was, I d- was not like, I'm, you know, I wasn't, I'm not a social worker. I, so I didn't know that no one likes foster care, that, that, that it's not there for you to like. It's that it's there because the judge ordered you to go there. And, um, so what I did was I would AWOL and, and so I would run away from the group home, but then there would be, uh, a bench warrant. From as soon as you AWOL from the group home, you have a warrant out for your arrest, and then you, be, you know what they know what they do. They the first thing they do is they they send they say they set a court date for like the next day, and if you're not at court, then they set then they do a warrant for your arrest. So that way they have they're able to arrest you for missing court. They have to commit a crime, so they make you commit a crime within 24 hours by just having you not show up at court for a date that you didn't know you had. And then, so I kind of did that jig, like juvie jail, group home, AWOL, juvie jail, group home, AWOL, juvie jail, group home, AWOL for like months. And then probably, honestly, until spring, <laughs> until yeah. they warmed up. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, and then in there is when I met, um, the people downtown in that, in that time when I was out of jail, but, you know, basically, it was just a cycle. I just did juvie jail, group home, AWOL, juvie jail, group And were they all equally something that you did not want to be a part of? The foster, the group what homes? Was what was of those things? Was like the juvie or? I loved juvie jail. Really? What was it oh, like? Oh, my God. I loved it. I had my own room. It was quiet. The doors were all like soundproof and the glass was bulletproof. And you just like, I had a little tiny window so I could see like a tiny bit of grass and a tiny little leafless tree, some snow and some frost on the window. That's all I needed. And it, I felt safe. Mm-hmm. No one was banging down the door, beating me, dragging me out of bed by my hair. 
there was some girls in there. I was one of the only white girls there, and there was some girls there that y- used to threaten me all the time. But because I knew that um, there was cameras everywhere, and if they hit me, they would get more charges, I would just tell them to F off all the time. And they were like, when you get out, you're going to get killed. And I was like, "That's a- when I get out, I'll, I'll deal with that then. But right now, I'm just kind of in my room. And I got, you know, I read some books. They had like a little school there and, you know, you could take some classes. And I just read and ate, I know. I had like three hots in a cot. I loved Mm. it. It sounds like you had, you probably had to grow up very fast in your upbringing. And I mean, even to have the thought at that very young age of thinking of the repercussions for those girls and then changing your behavior to benefit them. That is such a, an adult level of, of thinking. That's amazing. To benefit them? You know, you said that the charges would be upped. Yeah, but it was more, it was more like if I, if, if I had, it wasn't so much to benefit them. It was more out of like self preservation like oh, gotcha. oh no i wasn't trying to help them i just i just normally they scared me okay. oh these girls were like i was new on the streets these girls were hardened man they would they would they were not kidding when they said they were going to kill me they were very serious but instead of getting scared i just got tough mm. because i knew that they if they were going to do anything to me, they would have to kill me. And I knew that I hadn't done anything that would warrant them killing me. So it was just, they were just trying to scare me. And even if they did want to hit me, then I, I just was like, there's cameras everywhere. So if they hit me, they'll get more charges. So I just kind of told them to piss off. And I got, I just kind of got tough. I gotcha. Yeah. I wasn't yeah. trying to help them at all. And, and, and as a matter of fact, when I got out, there, there were girls that, that were trying to kill me. How but I terrifying. just, I just, um, I left town. Oh, did you make any friends along the way in any of these? Or were you very, each is out there for their own survival? There was, there was a couple of people that I met. That it was like some, it's random, but I met some, I met this, I met these two guys, Andy Frost and Ralph James, and they were older. They were very successful radio DJs at one of the best rock stations, um, I think that I've ever come across. And they would just invite me over and feed me steak and mushrooms and it's, you know, this other guy, Stephen Thompson would come and we would watch hockey and that's all we did. And we just hung out and they were really amazing people. And they introduced me to tons of amazing rock music that kind of like helped form me. Um, odd, like the odd pocket story. There were, um, a couple of nice girls that I met along the way. Um, but you know, I couldn't really form any real friendships because I was I was shoplifting. I had, so I, I, to survive, I was in, you don't have, I can't, what am I, when I do, I'm going to call you from jail. Like, right. You know what I mean? I had my, I was surviving, but then the, then I met that nice, that nice couple that I really liked that ended up, um, exploiting. exploiting. And this was Caesar and his girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. So, so Caesar was a pimp you later learned, but, 
you had no idea, and also maybe didn't know what a pimp was. But I had the, no I, idea what a pimp kind of the was. stereotype of a pimp is that they have like gold teeth and a big furry coat, and they have all these women in sexy outfits around them. And it sounds like you know you were kind of blindsided, well, fully. What was it like meeting those two? Yeah, it's it's one of those things that we were sort of talking about before that. It wasn't really, I didn't really realize exactly what it was until not that long ago, right? Great around the, not long before I wrote the story, um, for Dame. Excuse me. Um, but it was, what happened was I was doing my hustle downtown, which consisted of, you know, shoplifting and looking for a job or hanging out, trying to keep away from the cops. And so if I was AWOL, and I went into a store that called Le Chateau that was the hot spot in the 80s, in the very early, it's like 1980, 81. And it was the hottest place in town. It was where all the cool kids shopped and hung out. Not that there was any cool kids in Winnipeg at that time, but it, it that, you know, that's where people bought fancy clothes. And um, I went in there and I asked for a job and I was surprised, but they, this guy came and named Cesar and gave me, I got hired. I got hired right away. I was like surprised. It was amazing. And, um, so I worked there, but really it was kind of amazing. It was a perfect job for me because I didn't really have to do anything, which I'm good at. <laughs> That's the kind of job I really like. Yeah. It's the kind of job where like I can't fold clothes. I'm, I'm not, um, a good salesperson. And so just kind of standing around, being, you know, cracking jokes. That was your job? Was it kind of hospitality, like mingling well, with no, customers? no, I was supposed to technically. I was a salesperson. Okay. And if someone asked for help, I was happy to oblige them. I just, there was no pressure on me at all to perform. Okay. Like, you know, there was no like, hey, your sales are down or you really need to fold those sweaters or it was just kind of like, it was very laid back. And when did things begin to change? Uh, so you ended up Living with them is that? Correct? I ended up pretty quickly. I don't. It's a bit of a blur, but he had a lovely girlfriend who was a prostitute, and she's a really sweet girl, beautiful, lovely. They were both really nice. They were really nice, and I think he did have a coat with a fur collar. I don't think he had a full fur coat, and he, I don't think he had any gold teeth. But um, he was tall, dark, and handsome. And um, Lebanese from Montreal. And after, just to jump ahead for a second, at a, I, of course, had been on the streets for a couple of months and had been living in a, sh a sheltered life in small towns. So I was not aware that there was um, a Lebanese mafia in M Montreal, like a huge Lebanese mafia. Um, so for me, when... I, when I heard that he was Lebanese, it didn't ring any bells. Like, I was just very, like, that sounded really interesting. I have always been interested in geography and world travel. So, for me, I was thought it was it was cool. Um, and it is. You know, being Lebanese is cool. So, I, um, but later found out that, the, that from the police that there was a, that, that it was actually, like, um, the Lebanese mafia had a contract out for me because they felt that I had, they believed that I had ratted them out when I'd been arrested. 
which I hadn't, but that's when I became aware of a much larger storyline than just nice Cesar at the Le Chateau clothing store. Wow. You wrote uh, – your whole entire article is amazing, but this one particular little clip really struck me. You said that, I didn't know then that when a pimp harbors a minor, a ward of the court no less, and extracts sex – from her and exchange her place to stay that is, by definition, sexual exploitation, rape. Cesar had had sex with me daily, but it seemed natural, not my idea of rape. There's so much in that that I think speaks to kind of the misperceptions that we have about these things. Was your relationship, it's not a relationship, the way that you're being treated, was sex part of it the entire time or was that something that gradually entered the fold? Again, it, it's a bit of a blur exactly when things started or didn't start. And and also, in my mind, it, it was like over a year, but it's that's not possible. So I don't actually know how long I was even there. So the timeline's a bit, a bit weird. It couldn't have been more than a couple of months. Excuse me. But... Um, I would say, like, pretty quickly, there was sex. And it just kind of happened, like, every like every day, there was just sex. But it, I didn't think, I don't know. It was just We all, the three of us slept in the same bed. Mm-hmm. She would go to work every night. She, she, she worked during the day. She had a regular job. And then at night, she would go to her, wherever she went, to be a prostitute. And, um... There was discussion about me being a prostitute, but I, because I was hot, was the word that was used, meaning that I was, I had a warrant out for my arrest. Um, that was, they decided to wait a while before I got put on, and, and I like, I heard this conversation happening in front of me, like as if it was like, so I think we're going to buy Cheerios. It's not going to be, no, you know what? Let's just wait and, and do cornflakes until we know that Cheerios are good. Like, I, I was kind of like, huh, like, I, cause I, yeah. I sort of figured a little bit, like, I'll deal with that when it happens. Like, I don't know if I'm really, like, the prostitute thing. There's no sense discussing that in my head right now until the time comes. Because luckily, I have a warrant out for my arrest, so I'm somewhat protected. Wow. I, so and interesting. I, that I, was your protection. That was your yeah. hope was the arrest. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I already like didn't – they weren't telling me anything that I didn't want to hear. Like they were, you know, don't tell don't tell anybody where you are. That makes sense. I, ha- I was staying in a beautiful apartment. I had lovely people that I was staying with who didn't hurt me. We were having sex every day. It didn't seem – it wasn't – hurtful it wasn't forceful it wasn't it was just like rando sex like just like roll over have sex that's it It wasn't you know nobody was nobody was beating me Mm. nobody was getting really sinister and weird it was just rando sex so you didn't feel abused you just i didn't feel abused at all i felt safer than i had in a long time wow and I didn't want my parents to know where I was. I didn't want this to end. 
quite frankly. I, it was probably the nicest life I had in a long time. I lived in a beautiful apartment. The cops couldn't get me. No one knew where I was. They fed you, I'm sure. They fed me. Yeah. We had nice red wine. The wow. people that came over were interesting people that were visiting from Montreal. Wow. That is so interesting. And then you had a very traumatic, I would say, experience at the gynecologist. And it's in your article, and I think it's such a important piece. You were 16 the first time you saw a gynecologist? Mm-hmm. and I was 16 when I got my first period, too. Okay. That's partly why. I had no need to go to a gynecologist before because I didn't hit puberty until I was – well, I didn't actually hit puberty. I had my first period when I was 16 and almost – well, 16 and a half. Okay. But it was actually – my first period was actually a miscarriage. Wow. Wow. So who knows? You had been skipping periods, really. Well, I'd had sex one time. Mm. Okay. Wow. And you were showing symptoms of illness. Is that why you went into the gynecologist? When I was with them, you mean? When I went to – so I went to the, – the, the, the story is I'd never been to a gynecologist. And then I went to the hospital because I was – I'd been my first period. I hemorrhaged for 21 days before I was like almost dead. And my parents finally took me to the hospital. And so that – I'm sure there I saw a gynecologist because I was hemorrhaging from my vagina. So yeah. I'm sure that it was a gynecologist, but it was, it was like the ER. And then I'd never been to a real gynecologist until there was something, something must've been happening. I don't know exactly what it was, but I was taken to this doctor because to get checked for an STD. And that's when I went. So that was my first gynecological visit. And it didn't go well, to put it lightly. It was Pretty heartbreaking. She was, yeah. It was always something, again, that was like, an, I didn't understand all of how all these stories connected until like last year. But it was always, for me, in my mind, it was an isolated event where I was at that doctor and that, that uh, the, the girlfriend, Cesar's girlfriend, who's very sweet, took me to her gynecologist. And so I was in there seeing her and... This might be triggery for some people, but so I was was very uncomfortable for me. I again, I'd never had one before, and I didn't know that there's like a big metal thing that gets you know, yeah. it's horrible and it was very uncomfortable and it was really scary for me, and um, it was very painful for me. And I was started to cry and ask her to take it out, and she snarled at me, "How can you stand? How can you take a penis if you can't take this?" Ugh. And I kind of like sort of like just remember kind of like like being I – I probably zapped out of reality. But what I remember thinking was like, what? What, it, what is she – Like what is she insinuating? Wow. Yeah. Like, wow. First of all, she's really mean. Like, that was really mean. And like, out of left field. I'm just like, I hadn't been to a gynecologist before, but I'd been to a doctor before. And this is Canada. Like, you know, free healthcare. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I've never seen any a doctor ever 
be so mean to somebody before. And it seemed really disproportionate. And all I was asking was that she take that thing out because it was really hurting me. That seemed very logical to me. And it wasn't until I started to, and it always was very confusing. Like throughout my life, I would kind of look back and like, why do you stand up peanut? And then I was like, oh man, she thinks I'm like a, she just, she must like, like I've had like tons of cock. Yeah. You know, like, like I'm really just like a big, you. you know what I mean? Like I'm like, I'm 16 and a half. Like, what are you talking about? This is insane. And then it wasn't until it, it, the story started to come together where I was like, oh, she was the prostitute's gynecologist and the prostitute who was a beautiful girl. So I don't. I just, I'm saying, I'm being very, like, cryptic right now. And A, because I also don't want to say the girl's name. I'm sure it's not her real name. But I actually like her, and I don't, and I haven't obviously seen her since I was 16 and a half, 17 years old. But I'm being very protective of her, whereas I'm using his name. I appreciate that. Um, I I realized the, the structure of the story. The structure of the story was that I was brought in by a prostitute as the prostitute's friend. The question was whether or not I had an STD. So the assumption, I'm, t- I'm guessing, in retrospect, was that from the doctor, I was a businesswoman, a working prostitute. And that, therefore, this behavior from me was illogical to her. Because mm-hmm. how could I be a prostitute if I'm squeamish about having a 12 inch metal rod jammed up inside of me wow like a it's still rape yes and if i say to you it doesn't matter it doesn't matter at all if i'm like satan incarnate and i say stop putting that metal rod inside of me it means stop putting that metal rod inside of me it doesn't in any way, shape, or form mean, please don't stop doing that. Shame me, belittle me, and be cruel to me, doctor. Yes, that is so powerful. And I imagine you're not the only person who's experienced that. Oh, I bet you it's, well, we all know that. We know that. We know that. We know that people are treated differently. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. There's the whole, and I hate even the term, but the quote-unquote slut-shaming that happens and it's it's brutal it people people die because of it and that kind of harsh judgment is just horrible and the fact that a medical professional was you know rape is horrible no matter how it happens but there's an extra layer of of disgust around somebody who's supposed to be looking out for the health and wellness of a person that's that's yeah sad. and why didn't she just stop and call 911 absolutely absolutely so that appointment, did that change anything for you? Did did your perspective shift or was it you just got through it? And Well, I, I really had a hard time with gynecologists. I've been very lucky in that I've had an incredible gynecologist for like over 20 years. I found a really wonderful doctor. His name's Edward Liu. And I've been with him for over 20 years. And I went in there and I, when I, the first visit, I said, listen, I hate this. And I didn't tell him why. I just, cause it wasn't even on my radar, but I was like, this, I, I hate this, this, you know, and it's taken me years to be able to 
trust and to be able to just have uh, a general, and I still don't really. You know, there's there's a missing element of sort of the recognition sometimes of the vulnerability of what's happening. And I have had gynecologists that seemed kind of almost like they didn't want to talk about it, <laughs> you know, what was happening or, or my sexual health in general. You know, I think it's – I have found um, – one or two that have been awesome. But I think that feeling of violation is is probably very common, especially at your first one. You know, it's just I don't think that anyone's prepared for it. Mm-hmm. But I think anyone who's been through any kind of sexual trauma, how could that not be? I mean, there should be a lot of extra special care put into that, you know, and, mm-hmm. and maybe even gynecologists who specialize specifically in that. That would be know? lovely. It would be amazing. Yeah. So at what point, because I think there's a lot of uh, this belief that when we hear child sex trafficking or sex trafficking, we think of, and when I say we, I guess general population, and I've heard people say they imagine it's, you know, little orphans from certain countries, and, and that happens, mm-hmm. who they bring in and they have during these big, rich Super Bowl parties, you know, and it's child porn happening in the other room with all these rich millionaires. And I, I do know that that does happen, but it seems to me that there is so much more happening that people just have no idea about, even like you said, the idea of what rape actually is, when or how do you start to put the pieces together that sex trafficking had happened to you? I've been obsessed for years now with what's happening with the First Nations girls, the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada and in, in particularly in South Dakota um, and North Dakota and Minnesota, Far- Fargo, there's a lot, that whole sort of, I suspect that there's actually a pipeline there um, that goes from Manitoba down and then, and back up probably the South Dakota and North Dakota girls are, and they're all going to the oil fields and there's other uh, industry, there's, there's oil field, fields in the, along the border there as well. I, um, and I've been really that, and I, I didn't know exactly why I've been interested in that, but I, but I've known for a long time. I just kind of was like, that's what's happening there. It's, it's, there's serial killers. And because nobody cares about the First Nations girls, they're getting away with murder, literally. And I think if I was a serial killer, I would go there because there's thousands of girls who are, first of all, um, scooped up by the foster care system. Um, foster care is, is in, in this particular topic, uh, the new internment camps. They go into the reservations, they pick up all the girls, they take them into the city, they put them in foster care. And if you know anything about that part of, of the country, it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles between towns. The, and those towns are small and the reservations are small and the roads aren't plowed the, in the winter. They're, in the summer, they're, they don't, they're not paved. They're dirt roads because nobody wants to make it easy for people to come and go from there because that's the way it is. Um, so you've got all of these children who are taken from their homes and put into foster care in Winnipeg. And then they AWOL because foster care is horrible. 
And foster care in many ways in those group homes that I was in is worse than the streets. And it's worse than, I'm sure, where you come from in a lot of ways. Or at the very least, if it's not, it's all just horrible. So even it's different. It's new horrible. And sometimes old horrible is better than new horrible. And in, and for example, in foster care, what you have is what I had, which is what I didn't like about it was I had like 15, 20 kids who were coming from severe trauma, often different types of trauma than mine. So they had new tricks that I hadn't seen before. And they're, they're all displaced and they're all out of their minds and they're all sniffing glue and huffing gas and having sex. And it was just not my thing. At least in growing up, I got to have nature and I got to have some quiet and I read books and, you know, it wasn't, there was only three kids. There wasn't 15. And um, so I kind of had my suspicions. And then I started to see little things like the Winnipeg Free Press ran a story like 6,500 kids from foster care go missing every year. And I just started to like obsess on that story and really wanted to do something about it. And then at the same time, I had just finished my memoir and finished writing it and was, I had an agent and that was sort of like done now. I was like getting shopped. And so I was kind of done and I was just sort of looking for something new to write and something new to focus on. And at first I thought I would do the story on the First Nations people, but I realized that I really put my life at risk in order to do that. And in order to really do it and do it well, I'd have to go up there and spend a lot of time and it would become an investigative piece, which I wasn't uncomfortable doing, but I knew that it would take a year of my life and that I know the police are corrupt up there. And I have a brother that has a half brother who works in um, the like parole stuff up there. And, and I've heard tons of stories that the police are no different today than they were when I was there when they beat me um, in order to try to get me to tell about the ma ma mafia. So I kind of was like, I don't know if I'm going to do that. But then something else happened and I came to realize for the, f I, I was actually, you know what it was? I just remembered. I went to meet this, um, um someone in, in, um, an important uh, member of the city council who I, who I've come to know through their, through him and his wife's work uh, with trauma yoga, trauma centered yoga called uprising yoga. And it's Nick and Jill Ippolito. And I went for dinner with them and I said, you know, I'm interested in doing this story. You guys do, he, he runs the trafficking task force for Los Angeles County and like California is, you know, his, 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 in his domain. And, um, I said, I'm thinking of doing this story on the First Nations people up in Canada because I think that they're being trafficked and I think that there's a trafficking pipeline happening. And I said, you know, I have this story that happened in Winnipeg where all of these girls are going missing. And I told him my story. I said, you know, there was this guy and he was a Lebanese mafia and his girlfriend was a prostitute. And then this thing happened and then that thing happened and the police. And, the, and then he, and he looked at me and he said, that, that's like every story we have. And I was like, no, not my story. My story, no, no, that's just my story. The story I'm interested in is the story, and he told me that my story is the textbook quintessential trafficking story. And so that's when I kind of was like, I was like, I just kind of got really quiet and was like, oh, that's what trafficking is? 
Because I thought, too, my... I mean, obviously, I had a sense of something. I had an intuition about something. But I thought trafficking was when you bring Russian or Chinese girls over or girls from Romania. Like, I've seen, you know, seen a lot of that. And you bring them and that's trafficking. I didn't realize that trafficking can happen from a school to the street. I didn't realize it can be like a three-foot and you're being trafficked. I thought it had to be like include a passport or an airplane or something. I had no idea. And I certainly had no idea of the, um, all the shades of rape. I too thought that rape was, I thought rape was something that happens in a dark alley and it has to involve a knife. That's the rape that I'd seen. You know, I had written, I had this like big story where I watched my friend, you know, someone tried to rape my friend and I saved her life and it involved a knife. And so I was very clear that that was rape. And to be fair, it's because of all of the work that the young women of today are doing, like Lena Dunham and all these other women that are young women that are starting to give voice to these issues, these, this conversation that's happening today helped me to realize that that that's that's rape sure but also rape is you know a doctor giving you an unwanted uh, or unnecessary examination also rape is when a man lets you stay in his house for free and then has sex with you yeah when you're underage absolutely no and idea usually it's someone the, the victim knows, you know, it's not yeah. necessarily that happens, but it's not necessarily, that's really a, a powerful, powerful piece of your story. When you realize then that you had indeed, you know, it's a lot to take in that you were raped and, and trafficked, although you'd already been feeling such a sense of needing to, that, that intuition you talked about. So was it a powerful awakening? Did you feel a mix of emotions or any sense of relief even to know kind of a, a reason for what you were feeling? I think twofold. One, it's always a lovely moment in life when all these little missing pieces coagulate and you're able to um, get a, a story. I like that kind of stuff. I like when things come together, you understand something, you understand what it is, and then you can let it go. But until then, they're just, they'll, it's like they float there. But once they're together, then, then it can leave. And I wrote the story and, and, and that, that fed that part of me that was yearning to write something for the, for the girls, for the, for the missing and murdered indigenous women and, and all the First Nations girls in foster care and who may be being sexually exploited. That fed that need for me. And, um, also I think for me in terms of my own journey, I, I had written the, the book, I'd written my memoir and I had really released a lot of my, any confusions I had or made come full circle on a lot of stuff and released a lot of, of my own trauma through that journey. And also I'd, while writing the book, I'd done, you know, therapy, Kundalini yoga, EMDR, somatic experiencing, something called network. I'd been doing, I went away for trauma treatment in, to a place called inner path in Tucson. Um, I go to a 12 step fellowship, you know, I, so I'd been doing 
tons of work on myself. And this was sort of like a remaining piece. Then I mean, there's, 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 there's come to find as, as with everyone, there's more, there's more remaining pieces. But that at that moment, that was that remaining piece. And there had been a lot of trauma for me that I wasn't connecting. I wasn't sure I had super sensitive hearing. I am, I'm like, a, I used to say I'm allergic to the sound of metal, which I, once everything coagulated, Within 24 hours, I understood the metal was the metal rod. So whenever I would hear metal on wood or or metal fork on teeth, I I it, I can't tell you how how it to my core it reverberates and it makes me want to stab people. It really just drives me crazy. And so, and I also had a lot of pain with sex. Just not even like real pain. It was just more like psychic pain never really was able to really enjoy sex per se um although you wouldn't necessarily know it but it's true on a deep deep core level there was never any safety in around sex so obviously this is something that one would like to get through but i think until you're there and it's up against, your nose is up against the glass, so you don't know how to do it. It's like, you don't know how to do it. There's no book on how to do it. So you just keep going until you find it. And then that's, I found it. I found it in that moment with the, that's the sex trafficking story. Oh, I was trafficked. Oh, and then every single piece of that story made perfect sense. The Lebanese mafia, the, the, the guy who had you know, I had sex with me with them watching the sex every day, the doctor, the police, everything kind of all came together that she could be a prostitute, but she's too, got too much heat on her and like all that stuff. And so it, like, then it released and I was able to continue on in my, my own journey. And also, like I said, just at the risk of being redundant, but feel like I had given voice to some of the people. And that's, and one of the things that I did in that piece was, you know, include a lot of links to rights for girls, the, um, a lot of the women's coalition, the women, the, uh, missing and murdered indigenous women website, and just include some statistics that I felt were hopefully revelatory. That's so powerful. And what an inspiring journey you've been on. I love that you brought up the fact that, Sex was on some level painful, felt very unsafe to you because I think that is, I know that is so common. And each week, you know, we answer a question from listeners and we send it to our sex and relationships expert, Dr. Megan Fleming, who is amazing. Her website is greatlifegreatsex.com. And this question came specifically for her. Um, it comes from Samuel. Samuel wrote this. Last fall, my wife revealed that she was sexually abused as a child, which is why she's been dealing with depression and anxiety. Having a child seemed to trigger old wounds. She said it's also the reason she hasn't been interested in sex lately. She's getting therapy for her emotional issues, which is helping, but we're still having trouble sexually. I don't want to push her and want to be supportive, and I also miss our physical intimacy. I would love to hear any advice you may have. Here's what Dr. Megan had to say for you, Samuel. Samuel, thanks for your question on behalf of yourself and so many other men and women who are experiencing the impact and effects of histories of uh, childhood abuse. And 
first of all, I wanted to say, I think it's amazing and awesome that your wife is in therapy and in treatment because I think the most important thing I want you and everybody listening to know is that even though uh, people may have been through incredibly traumatic experiences in childhood, we don't have to be victims of those experiences or hold that trauma in our body today and as adults. Um, so first of all, I think again, it's great that you recognize the value of being supportive and it's interesting and it's not just specific to your wife, but other women that it's almost like the trauma didn't reveal itself was sort of repressed or denied until, um, sort of in a sense, the trigger of having a child. Um, it's not uncommon that, you know, uh, women may not sort of have memories until, um, becoming a mother and sort of reliving those ages that their own child may have been. Um, so again, the recognition that symptoms like depression, anxiety, uh, her no longer being receptive to sexual touch, these are all big sort of warning signs or flags to, you know, really get curious, hmm, what's happening, what's going on, and to seek treatment. Um, so I think the first you know, I'd recommend an amazing book and resource. It's called The Sexual Healing Journey by Wendy Maltz. It's actually now in its third edition um, because I think it is about resuming touch and connection in ways that feel uh, safe and pleasurable. Um, your wife has it's sort of visceral. It's in her body. There's um, a reaction to being touched and the association of that is, is of coercion. Um, it's not a pleasure. And it's often really people who are survivors of, of, of abuse. It's often really confusing because, uh, even women who have been raped or other sexual traumas, you know, oftentimes their bodies can respond in a, a pleasurable way. And that's really confusing, especially when it hasn't been wanted sexual touch. And so it's really about extinguishing in her body, uh, what's unpleasant about touch and to learn to receive in ways that feel, um, pleasurable. And so what's great about Wendy's books is that it really gives practical hands-on, uh, skills, tools around communication, but also about resuming touch, uh, because ultimately you want to pace it, take it slow to learn playful, non-sexual ways of touching. So first and foremost, she can learn to relax. I think that so often the thought of being touched creates tension in the body. And so by taking sex off the table, taking penetration off the table, and it's just about experiencing uh, a safe and pleasurable pleasurable touch that really is an expression of sort of your mutual respect, caring, and love. And really taking it slow. I often say to my clients, if you go slower, you get there faster because this really is about releasing patterns in the body, extinguishing those old, uh, emotional responses. Um, because ultimately healthy sexual pleasure and to know that in one's body is something we all deserve and can achieve. And I think that taking the time and again, gradually, slowly resuming intimacy at first, taking off penetration, really helping each other, um, create that bond and safety is going to make a world of difference. So, um, again, I thank you for your question and I would love feedback and can't wait to hear how things go. Thanks so much, Dr. Megan. Wonderful advice as always. And for y'all listening, uh, that book again is called The Sexual Healing Journey by Wendy Maltz. I love what Dr. Megan said about 
taking it slow to get there faster and and the importance of pleasure and having patience and all of that. It's such important universal messages. And uh, I'm so grateful for your question, Samuel, because I think so many people go through this and the fact that you are prioritizing being supportive is, is so, so huge. Uh, do you have any thoughts that you would add to that or maybe um, for anyone whose partner is going through sexual trauma or PTSD? Um, yeah, I like what that what the doctor said and kind of keeping the focus on intimacy and um in the research that I've been doing in the last couple of months about attachment trauma and uh intimacy um the the I found a lot of very interesting things mostly just the correlation between trauma and and, and intimacy issues and um I have to say I have am really interested in the S fellowships, the the twelve step programs that focus on sex addiction, and also you know there's there's so many there's sex and porn addiction, there's sex and love addiction, there's sex addiction, and the the coinciding of the other side of the coin, the S anon fellowship, which is like Al anon, which is more familiar, um, which is. It's the Al-Anon for sex addiction. And um, it's for people who love people who have sex addiction. And really what I – how I perceive all of that is it's all the core of the, the – there's two cores to both sides of that coin. There's um, shame and the shame leads to intimacy problems and um, – I have to, like, I can't say enough about all of that. It's sort of like the, it's still the, the forbidden world in our society, um, to talk about sex and to talk about sex addiction and to talk about sexual trauma. And this fellowship, these fellowships, my understanding of them is that they are really dealing with the real issues. They're really dealing with the core, the shame and the intimacy. And I really think that from what I've been seeing and what I've been reading, that that's the real hope for our future is, is getting to the core. And they, I feel like they get to the core more than any other of 12-step fellowships that I've even seen. And even in the books, I mean, you can read books about codependency or sex, um, about self-love deficiency or like all of that stuff. But really, really what it's really at for me, I think, is, is attachment trauma and shame. Interesting. That is fascinating. And shame, it's so insidious. And mm-hmm. like you said, it is, it is so embedded in our culture that whether you have been traumatized sexually or not, you probably have shame around your sexuality. 100%. And people who have shame around their sexuality are more likely to also, you know, violate people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes on in every direction. If we could get rid of that and and help people see that their sexuality is innate and beautiful and totally lovable and just a yeah. part of you. I yeah. mean, it seems As so basic. Whatever. Yeah, I think so too. I think that I think that there's probably a wealth of interesting sex to be had that isn't violating. Yeah, absolutely. If the shame, I think the shame, because you have to get clear about 
where you end and they begin and, and, and boundaries. And it's very difficult to have clear boundaries in intimacy with shame because shame prohibits you from talking about things and getting clear about things. Yeah. So true. It's like a wall. Absolutely. I'm sure many people listening are in awe of your courage and also that you are doing such wonderful work in your life creatively, professionally, to help others as well. How did you get to a place where you started to feel like you could thrive? I know you mentioned lots of different steps, but was there sort of a a turning point or any advice that you'd offer to people who are in those situations? You know, the answer I have for that is kind of not a super like glam answer. And I feel, I always feel a little embarrassed. Like I should have like, you know, one day I just woke up and I really, you know, or I was like on a jet plane and I was wearing a fur coat and I was like, no, but cause, because the truth is, is that I was, it was really a, and I think this is probably where most of these things really actually do come from. And it feels almost biblical in a way, but I was really unhappy in my life. I was miserable. I was suicidal. It was not that long ago. It was like about 10 years ago. Um, I kind of just was like looking. I kind of like I had this sort of out of body experience where I kind of looked around my apartment and sort of like bird's eye view of my life and was like, this can't be what I'm meant to do. Like people who are better than like people are dying people why am i not dead how am i not dead and what am i doing here and if i am here why have i been spared and what am i supposed to do and i had always heard like actresses and people have these like passions and they have these like philanthropic philanthropic things that they love and philanthropies that they love and things they do you know what's your passion and I had nothing but mostly I didn't know because I didn't have anything because I didn't I was so out of touch with the reality of my life and when I was I was having lunch with someone from the Children's Action Network who they are foster children advocates because I was looking for someone I was doing curating fuck pretty and I was looking for a young girl who was like a troubled teen maybe who could contribute to the show because that was important to me and um Someone said, you should meet Jennifer Perry and Nicole Cadena from Children's Action Network. They're incredible. So having lunch with Jennifer and she's talking about foster care. And I was like, I was in foster care. And she goes, you were? And I was like, I was? (laughs) And I kind of was like, I sort of blocked it out. I never identified in my, I, I was so lucky. I got on a Greyhound bus when I was 17 and a half years old. Within six months, I was the biggest model in Canada. And then I traveled all over the world and then I became an actress and lived in you know like I never had to look back at that that I was able to disassociate that part of my life I never identified as being in foster care or as in juvie jail I did a lot of drugs to suppress the story yeah. And the brain protects you too, right? Doesn't it? The brain it? shuts you down shuts down for you, but it creeps up. You can't keep it down forever. You have to you have to, you know, you can have the brain shuts down, you have the lovely shame that will bind you that will keep help keep the stories in place. But it just come you can do as many. You know, if you live, if you live to tell the tale, the tale will be told. You just can't avoid it. 
So, I mean, you'll eat yourself to death or you'll, you'll act out, you'll ruin your job, you'll ruin your marriage, you'll ruin everything. You just ruin everything because you can't. You can't. You have to integrate at some point. You, your, your soul craves to be whole. The soul craves to be healed. That's, I think, our ultimately our thing here on earth is to heal the brokenness and it will cry out to be healed and if you don't you'll end up dying you'll either you can't sustain that life for very long so i literally fell to my knees and was just like i there's there's got to be something more for mm. me to do here than this and i kind of just started that's when i started doing you know, seeking some spiritual paths and some meditation and just kind of like, show me what I'm supposed to do. I feel like I'm here for a reason because I feel like everyone's here for a reason because why are lovely people dying and I'm still alive and there's got to be something I'm supposed to do. So I just kind of did that. I just kind of begged out, cried out to the universe, like, show me what I'm supposed to do. And what I did was things just, you know, I did, I did the fuck pretty, which was an, it was like, you know, beautiful images from these many different photographers, but it was a, a narrative. It was the first time I started to tell my story with other people's images. And then, and then I was like, okay, when that was done, I was like, okay, I need to write a book now. I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell my story that way. And, and that was, that's sort of been what I've been doing. And, um, I, you know, I still, it's not like I'm doing it because I know that this is my thing. It's not that. It's just that I'm just doing that because I do whatever comes up next. You're evolving. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, I love that. I think that that's very inspiring, especially because there is this idea for everyone that passion is this destination, not that it is something that is a seeking journey, you know, mm -hmm. and that one thing can lead to another. And, um, so how do you feel that you're doing with it all now? I am trying to be conscious of the fact lately that, you know, I, I literally kind of like tug on my metaphorical skirt some days and kind of go, all your dreams are coming true. You, you do need to recognize that mm -hmm. in real time, please. Because that's something I never did before is I never had the time to, I never gave myself the time to say, you're doing a really good job or all your dreams are coming true. Like this is what you wanted and it's happening. It was always like, it's because never enough. It's never you were enough. in survival mode I was all in the survival time. Like, mode. Now, now, now. So I'm trying to just slow it down a little bit and, and, and be cog you know, conscious of that. I'm, I'm real. you know, there's with everything in life, there's, it's, you know, it's always, there's always another level of healing to happen. This, I did the sexual healing last summer with this story and got a lot of reprieve from that and a lot of self-worth from that. And then, um, this year, what was up for me was the, um, the low self-esteem, the, the, uh, self-loathing and the shame and the intimacy issues came up and I've been able to work on that. And, um, I've also, you know, with each step along the way, I become more and more productive in my life. I've finished that book. It's still being shopped. I'm, I've written more essays that have been published. I'm writing another book for someone else now. So, um, and I just 
you know, I got just got to do a beautiful piece on uh, Ray Donovan that I'm really honored to be a part of because I love that show. And that's that's really important to me in my life now is doing what I want, being a part of beautiful things with beautiful people who I respect and and not um, lowering myself to to get by or just being really um, – clear about what I want in my life. And, and, and even though it can be very isolating sometimes and very painful because you're constantly having to transition or transform, um, and transformation can be very lonely and scary and new and overwhelming. Um, but what, with each step along the way, I have more and more love. I have more and more capacity to experience intimacy and love. And, um, I get setting boundaries with people who I don't feel safe with gets easier and easier. And there was a time when I would have rather just, you know, killed myself than set clear boundaries and enforce them. And so I'm, I think I have deep gratitude that things do get better. Things get easier. That's something that just doesn't feel like, you know, it's like starting something new can be so scary and to have to do it over and over and over again, for someone like me, I'd rather go. I really would. I'd rather be dead. Like I would have, you know, there's many times throughout my life where I was like, I'll just call it a day. It'll come back another time when everybody's in a better mood. <laughs> this one's a bit much. But then I had these moments that were just so odd and spectacular. Like who becomes the biggest model in Canada straight out of jail? Who gets to come to L.A. and become a working, successful actress and becomes like a businesswoman? Like who gets that? Who gets to curate a photo show, their first one, and have it be like a spectacular smash and get like great critical reviews and sell out and like – who gets to, who writes a book and sells public, gets nominated for a push cart? Like, who does that? Yeah. And so there's these things where those, those moments, and it's funny because I always felt this weird pressure or people would say things to me like, wow, I must feel great. Or how do you feel about that? And I, I, I was, I don't feel anything about it because I always felt this pressure that those things, those outside things should be the things that make me feel good. But what you don't understand is there's nothing that can make me feel good. Those things are signs that something might be afoot that is worth staying alive for, but they don't make me feel anything. They're just things that kind of make me think, why don't you just roll up your sleeves and work a little bit harder? Why don't you put some of that aggression into self-love and see what happens. And maybe you can transform your life. Maybe you can do what you're supposed to do here. And maybe you can be the change you want to see in the world. Not to sum it up with a cliche, but, but that, you know, if we need, I want to be for someone else that these girls are, are for me, you know, the women that are talking about the definitions of rape. And if, and if I, and I, and I know that that did happen because of the feedback that I've gotten from some of the stories that I've been, that I've been writing, not the least of which was the trafficking story. I saw it on a published on a, on a, on a, on a website that's for and by um, women who were trafficked and saying, this is the typical story. We didn't know we were being trafficked. 
And for me, I go, okay, cool. That's good. That's good. I, first of all, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one. I'm not some idiot. No one says you're being, come on in. We're going to sexually exploit you. Um, and, but also that sense of, you know, at the end of the day, all you can ask for is that you've stayed alive and maybe you've made someone else's life just a smidgen better. Mm. So beautiful. I've no doubt you're doing that on, on a large scale. And I just wish you the best with all of it. Thank you. Could you tell us again where we can learn more about you and follow your work? Where you can learn more about me? Yeah. <laughs> um, I have, you know, I, I've been, because I've been writing a, a book for someone else for a little while now. I haven't been doing my social media that much, but I do have, I have a website, which is fuckpretty.org. And I have Instagram is fuck pretty a memoir. Um, and I do communicate there pretty frequently and post things and you can get updates on, on things I'm writing in the book there. And I have a Twitter which is really Angie says. I think the best Twitter one where you can contact me is is Angie says S E Z. And there's a couple of there's a fuck pretty Facebook page. There's an Angela Featherstone Facebook page, and um, yeah, I've actually responded to uh, requests on the Facebook pages and on Instagram. So if you and also there's um yeah. There's a, I have a, I actually created an email because I was getting so many questions from people from the the excerpts and the essays that I wrote, uh, but I don't remember it right now. So those are good. If you think of it, just let me know. We can always add that into the notes. Thank Thank you you again for sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, It's an honor to be here. And if you or someone you love you think may be being trafficked, I think it's really important to know about the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. You can call them at 888-373-7888, 373-7888. They're available 24-7, totally confidential. You can also simply text the word HELP or INFO to 233-733. Their website is traffickingresourcecenter.org. For more from Dr. Megan, remember to check out greatlifegreatsex.com. To connect with me on social media, find uh, extras for the show and purchasing options for my book, Embraceable, which is full of stories of sexual empowerment and self-acceptance, visit augustmclaughlin.com. If you're digging Girl Boner Radio, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes and leave us a reading and review. Thank you so much for listening and have a beautiful Girl Boner Embracing Week.